you to imagine tonight that you um, walk into a movie theater with some friends to see the very first Star Wars movie, okay, so episode four, re-released on the big screen, okay? So you sit down with your popcorn, you silence your cell phone, you watch a few previews, and suddenly um, you hear the John Williams theme, and you see the opening titles like scrolling along the screen, and uh, you're getting excited about seeing Star Wars, right? And as the last words fade into the distance, suddenly the film cuts to the last scenes of the movie. So suddenly it's Luke Skywalker navigating his way through the Death Star in his ship to destroy the evil empire and save the rebellion. And then you get the scene of celebration, complete with like 70s costumes and music. Uh, all the best of 70s costumes. So um, how disappointing would that be, right? You'd see the end of the movie, like the rescue mission and the celebration, but not any of the conflict or the story that led up to that ending. And if you hadn't seen the movie before, you'd be pretty confused, right? Who's this guy in the orange suit? Why is there a beeping trash can on top of his ship? Um, what is this strange maze that he's flying through? You, in any case, you would feel like you've been ripped off, right? So imagine you go to the manager and you say, hang on, I paid to see the whole movie. How come it went right to the last scene? And uh, Imagine he said, well, we decided to just show that last scene because that's everybody's favorite part and it's the most important part of the movie, right? Um, everything else in the movie is really only preparation for that scene. Um, that, that's, you know, that's, that's the climax. You would probably have enough sense to know that that doesn't make any sense, that you can't appreciate the conclusion of the adventure, right? Um, unless you know the whole story. It doesn't make much sense and it's not very exciting unless you have the whole adventure. Um, so as we turn again to look at the Old Testament tonight, I wanna argue that the same thing is true when it comes to reading the Bible as Christians, right? Too often we just skip to the rescue scene because that's the best part anyway, right? It's the destruction of the Death Star. Um, without seeking to understand or communicate the whole story. So our goal in these Old Testament nights together is to just rewind the film at least a little bit so that we can understand a little more about the setup for the rescue that the Lord brought to, to us um, through our Lord Jesus Christ um, when he sent the Messiah. Okay, so a few more cheesy memory trips tricks tonight. Old, how many letters in the word old? Three, Francisca, right on the ball there. How many letters in the word testament? Nine, John Perry, speed award. Um, nine, how many books are there in the Old Testament? 30, in the, in the Bible there are 66, yes, yes. In the Old Testament there are how many, can you guess? 39, right? Old, 3, Testament, 9, 39 books in the Old Testament. Mm. It only works in English. Don't, don't try this abroad. It only works in English. Um, okay, so I want, we're going to do a briefer job of this tonight. Um, but I want to just quickly review the whole story of the Old Testament so we have the whole thing in our heads as we narrow in a little bit tonight to look at the prophets. Um, okay, so what happens at the beginning? Creation, shortly after, or in the narrative, shortly after, anyway. The fall, two more things happened to the whole world. The flood and 
the Tower of Babel, okay? We get our, I'm calling this beginnings, our four events that happened to the whole world. That's the beginning of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11. The creation of the world, the rebellion against God, um, the coup against his leadership as king, the flood um, going back to square one. So again, the whole earth is covered with water before it's separated again. And then the Tower of Babel. That's the beginnings. After all this cosmic history of the whole world, we narrow into what family? One family, Abraham's family, okay? So here we have the patriarchs and the matriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is renamed Israel, right? That's where we get the name of that family, the nation that comes from this family. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their family. And at the end of this story, I'm clearly 30,000 feet here, they end up in what nation? in Egypt, right? There's a famine in the rest of the world, and Joseph saves his family. God sets him up really well for it, but he saves his family by bringing them into Egypt, okay? Several hundred years later, what's happened to them in Egypt? They've become slaves, and they cry out to the Lord, and he delivers them from Egypt, right? So the next big thing is the Exodus. Um, so Joe takes them into Egypt, Mo takes them out, right? The Lord raises Moses up to bring them out of slavery in Egypt, and he does all kinds of amazing things like the plagues and parting the Red Sea to get them out of slavery and into where? Not immediately, though, right? Sorry, trick question. Into the promised land, but where do they spend some time first? In the wilderness, right. So the next little chapter of their life turns out to be longer than it needed to be because of their um, fear, really. Um, so they spend 40 years in the wilderness. Two key things happen here. They're given the law by, God, by which God gives them a culture to live into that's going to reflect his character, who he is. If you live this way, the way he designed the whole world to be, in fact, um, then you will look like people who look like me, right? Reflecting his heart um, for justice, for kindness, for purity, um, and for provision for everyone. They're given the law, and they're given the tabernacle, yeah. So God, this is when God designs a physical place in which he's gonna live with them, right? So the promises to Abraham of a people, a place in God's presence, um, we see a people provided here, a place is coming, but here he gives them his presence. He get, has his own tent in the wilderness with them. Okay, so what's next after 40 years in the wilderness? Conquest, yep. So they, um, the Lord gives them possession of this land, um, the land that he promised all the way back here. Now he said to Abraham when he promised it, did we talk about this last week? Can't remember. Um, that he wasn't going to let them go in until it was time for him to judge the people who were living there anyway. So it's not just a lake random, okay, time for you guys to get out and you guys to get in. He says to Abraham, no, I'm not going to take you in until the sin of the Amorites has reached its fill already. So until God was already going to be doing something with the Amorites um, because of their sin, then when that's happening already, he moves his people into this place, okay? So it isn't random. We don't get their whole story, but we do get some real hints that there's some sort of story between God and the Amorites going on. Um, this isn't just a random favoritism issue. Okay, so they move in to this <coughs> promised land, and what happens next? After Joshua leads them in, who, who takes care of them next? The judges, okay? So remember, judges are um, not just 
people with curly wigs making decisions, right? That's a term, of maybe a bad term that we use um, for the heroes that God raised up to lead his people, to rescue them over and over and over again. So the cycle in Judges is God's people trust him, they do well, they stop trusting him, and they start rebelling against him, and their enemies get the better of them, and they cry out to the Lord, and he rescues them. And this just happens over and over again, only it gets worse and worse as it goes along. Their periods of peace last less and less um, time. And everything is spiraling down until the nation is really at its worst, okay? They're slaughtering each other, they're raping each other, one tribe almost gets completely wiped out. It's a total mess. And who does God appoint to lead them? Yeah, their first king, right? So this is where we see the advent of the kingdom come in. And we have three kings who rule over the entire kingdom. Um, Saul, David, and Solomon. So it's a David sandwich, two S's, two slices of bread around him, right? Um, Saul, David, and Solomon are the only three kings who rule over the whole kingdom, okay? Um, And after Solomon's death, um, through a really bad decision by his son, the kingdom is... Divided, yep. So then we have a divided kingdom, which means you've got to get your thumbs ready, okay? So for those of you who weren't here last time, you can just watch first. Um, But this is our trick for keeping the two parts of the kingdom straight, okay? You can listen first if you want. North, south, Israel, Judah, 19, 20, 0, 8. Let's do it together, and then I'll explain it all. North, south, Israel, Judah, 19, 20, 0, 8. So the 12 tribes, the kingdom of all 12 tribes, splits into two. Ten tribes in the north and two in the south. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. So north, south, Israel, Judah. The northern kingdom has 19 kings in total until it ends. The southern kingdom has 20. The northern kingdom has zero good kings who follow the Lord. Um, And the southern kingdom has eight. So let's do that again. North, south, Israel, Judah, 19, 20, 0, 8. And that's going to be important tonight when we look at the prophets. Because most of the prophets are speaking and teaching and writing in this period of time. So this is where we're going to narrow in tonight. Okay, so how does the history of the northern and southern kingdom end? Poorly. (laughs) Badly. Um, they, again, over and over again, despite the warnings of the prophets, rebel against the Lord. There are seasons of rebellion and seasons of repentance. Um, but as a, as a consequence of their rebellion, they both, both parts of the kingdom end up in exile. So A.B., um, the northern kingdom ends up in Assyria. They're exiled to Assyria. The southern kingdom is exiled to Babylon. I've got some times here, 722 and 586, the first dates on our timeline, first and only, but they're, they're kind of important. So 722 BC, the northern kingdom's exiled to Assyria, the southern kingdom is exiled to Babylon. And then what happens? Yeah, then they come back. That's the next chapter. They spend some time, this group comes back. The, the southern kingdom of Judah, exiled to Babylon, ends up being brought back into the land in three waves. The northern tribes we never hear from again, Um, except for those who are left in the land who intermarry with other Assyrians and become the Samaritan people. 
um, but the tribe, the people who were actually taken away, we don't, we don't know what happens to them. So lots of great historical fiction written about the lost ten tribes, okay? Um, <clears throat> but we don't have much real information about them. This group comes back, not all of them, some of them stay in Babylon for good, um, but many of them come back to the land of Jerusalem in three waves. And this is our trick for the three waves, right? So there are three leaders who bring them back to Israel. Um, it's Zerubbabel Temple, Ezra People, Nehemiah Walls. So Zerubbabel brings back the first group and they rebuild the temple. Then Ezra comes back and teaches the people and calls them back into repentance and holiness. And then Nehemiah hears that the walls of Jerusalem are a wreck and therefore vulnerable and he comes back and leads the people in restoring the walls. So let's do that together, okay? Zerubbabel, temple, Ezra, people, Nehemiah, walls, okay? So three kind of waves of returning um, exiles back into the land. Um, and after that return, there's a real commitment to never see exile happen again, right? So what do they, what's their strategy for making sure that nobody sins against the Lord and ends up in exile again? Yeah, right. Okay, so we're calling this Judaism for maybe for lack of a better term. But there's a particular kind of rabbinic Judaism that kind of is develops in this period where they add all kinds of extra rules or laws around God's law, okay? The rabbis talked about this as building a fence around the law or building a hedge around the law, right? So if you add a whole bunch of extra stuff, then people can't even get close to breaking God's law. Um, so it's a kind of added sort of legalism in an attempt to prevent God's people from ending up under his judgment ever again. But of course what happens is people get pretty fixated on these things and lose their heart for, for obeying God's law itself. So a lot of the clashes between Jesus and the Pharisees happen about this kind of peripheral issue. Um, so I just gave away the next chapter. What's the next chapter? <laughs> the Messiah comes into this. We're stopping here because that's kind of where the Old Testament stops. But of course, Jesus comes into at this point in the story. So this is why the Death Star scene is so exciting because there's all this long lead up to it. Um, he gives his spirit, establishes his church, and then promises to come back. So I told you it's, it's 30,000 feet, but that's our overview, okay? Um, tonight, we're going to focus on talking about the books uh, of the prophets, okay? So there are three groups of Old Testament literature, at least in Jewish thought, um, and it's where we get the Jewish word Tanakh to describe the Old Testament. It's an anagram, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. Torah is the five books of Moses, Nevi'im is the prophets, Ketuvim is the writings, like poetry and wisdom literature, okay? So we're focusing on that middle section, the book of the prophets tonight. Um, that's 22 out of the how many books, Francisca? How many books in the Old Testament? 39, okay? So the books of the prophets are a huge portion of this story, right? And that's why I want to give them a little more time. Now, if you ever hear or read about the prophets in the Old Testament literature, you might hear all kinds of adjectives thrown in. So some, sometimes you'll hear the prophets divided up between the former prophets and the latter prophets, okay? The former prophets are the books that some people also describe as the historical books. So Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Um, they have prophets in them, like 
Moses and Joshua and, um, well, Moses only a tiny bit, um, Joshua and Elijah, and, you know, they talk about a lot of prophets, but they're not necessarily written by prophets. So those are historical books. Sometimes people call them the former prophets. The latter prophets are what we tend to think of as the, the prophetical books. Um, now, within that, now just if, you, if this terminology, you've never heard it or wondered what it meant, then you can just tune out for a minute. But within that latter prophets, books that are written by the prophets, not just stories that happen to have prophets in them, in that group, it's often subdivided between major prophets and minor prophets which is not like the major league and the minor league, right? Like the major league, people are really, really good in the minor league or like didn't quite make the cut, right? That's not what they mean. The major prophets, just three of them, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, the major prophets are people whose writing took up a whole scroll, okay? It only has to do with length. So the major prophets are the three prof prophetic books that are long, that are really long, major, right? The minor prophets, sometimes called the Book of the Twelve, because there's 12 of them, are only minor because of their length. So they're just as important. They just didn't write as much, okay? So major prophets, three really long books. Minor prophets, 12 shorter ones. All right. Who were the prophets? What is the prophet, okay? Um, the Hebrew word is navi, and it probably means literally someone who's called. So it's somebody who's called. Um, anyone who has a Bible, could you read, somebody read for us, you can race, Let's see who gets there first, Deuteronomy 18, 18. What did a prophet do? This gives us, this is one of many places where we hear the job description of a prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 18. Yes, please. Thank you. Okay, so from that verse, I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. What's the job description of the prophet? Yeah. Elizabeth, did you want to add to that? Yeah, yeah. So a prophet is God's mouthpiece. A prophet is someone who says whatever God tells him to say, right? There's this really interesting part in Exodus 7 <coughs> where the Lord says to Moses, okay, 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 if you don't want to talk to Pharaoh, Recruit your brother Aaron. He'll be like a prophet to you. You'll be like God. He'll be like a prophet, meaning he'll say whatever you tell him to say, okay? That's the job description of a prophet is th the words are originating with someone else and you report them. Um, okay, a couple more things generally about the prophets. We tend to focus on the part of the prophetic books that have to do with foretelling events, okay? So we, like at Christmas at our services, we'll read all these things that the prophets wrote about the Messiah who was coming or about the future judgment or about the exile, things that they were foretelling or predicting, right? But that's really only part of the message that the prophets have. And some people talk about it in a way that I think is helpful, that they were both foretelling and forthtelling, right? So that's kind of a complicated verb. But they were not only foretelling things that were going to happen in the future, but they were telling forth God's truth about what was happening right then as well. So just keep that in mind as we think about the prophets. They weren't all pie in the sky by and by, 
You know, it wasn't just about the future. They were also called to give God's word into the present. So they were forth-telling, telling forth God's messages into the present and also foretelling what they heard from God about what he was going to do in the future. So foretelling and forth-telling. And there's a change, a bit of a change, in the role of the prophets as we walk through this story of the Old Testament, okay? Um, around the 8th century, so that's after the kingdom has divided, you see this shift from the prophets acting basically as royal advisors to the king um, to being more messengers to the people. So it gets to be a little more democratic, their role as you go along. So if you think about it, the earlier prophets that we hear about, um, you hear about Samuel and the ways that he's advising King Saul, right? Or you hear about Nathan, the prophet Nathan, confronting King David. Um, you see Isaiah's conversation with King Ahaz or Elijah interacting with Ahab. There's, there's a lot of um, ministry like as advisors to the king. But as you go along, and it kind of shifts around the eighth century, um, you see the prophets talking more and appealing more and more directly to the people, both, it seems, in preaching and in writing. Okay? Um, and there's a shift that happens around the same time between just oral communication and then a kind of shift to written communication. So they're not just preaching and teaching and talking to people when they come to the temple, but they start to write poetry. They start to write um, laments. You start to see written communication as well that would have been circulated. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the specific prophets and what they said and who they were talking to. Um, before I do that, do we have any burning questions? I can't wait till the end. Anything you'll be confused about until the end? Yeah. I think you said something about the lost tribes that the mm -hmm. Well, they never come back. We don't know. We don't know what happens to them. They yeah, assimilate into Assyria after their exile. Which are the two? Judah, and Benjamin is in the Judah. south as well. Mm -hmm. Do we have any, um, any writings or any kind of history uh, of Jews that didn't return? Or they just didn't well, yeah, we so especially in Babylon, yeah. because you have a very literate community in Babylon. So we hear um, you do see some kind of rabbinic um, development, some Talmuds. Talmudic material written in Babylon, so we hear from them. We just don't know as much about the folks who ended up in Assyria. All right, I'm going to pass these out. I have a question. Yes. Are the exiles from Assyria and Judea and Ephraim, are they exiles in the same time, or are they from different generations? Um, different generations. So the northern kingdom is exiled in 722 BC, the southern kingdom in 586 BC, which remember, because you're going backwards, means they're about. 140 years apart. Um, yeah, so different generations. So the sad thing is these guys watched what happened in the north, and the prophets will say, guys, look what happened to the other, you know, when they didn't repent, look what happened. And, um, and they, they didn't turn around enough to avoid the same fate. Yeah. No, before, before. And there's some serious reform. Like you see kings like um, Josiah and Hezekiah really reforming the worship of God's people in this period. And that's really why this kingdom lasts a bit longer, because they have these periods of obedience. 
and um, faithfulness. So you get the sense that that's kind of why they're able to stay longer. Okay, everybody should have one of these handouts. Um, you don't have to study it too hard because we'll have some good ways to remember it. I think for me, one of the hardest things is keeping track of who are these prophets, who are they talking to, when are they talking. This is an attempt at making it a little bit simpler. So <clears throat> bear with my cheesy mnemonic tricks. But I want you to all pretend that you're in Jerusalem, which means you're Southerners, right? You're in the, in the kingdom of Judah. So we're in, in Jerusalem, we're the Southerners, and we're going to look north because we're turning this room into a map for a minute. We're going to look north at the northern kingdom. And what do Southerners in this country say to Northerners in, say, January or February? Ha, ha, ha. Okay, so just take a minute, stand up. <coughs> Put on your best Southern drawl. Look up at the northern kingdom and say, ha, ha, ha. Okay, have a seat. That's how we remember... I don't think I have a pen. That's how we remember which of our two prophets are talking to the north. Hosea, H, Amos. Okay, Hosea and Amos, H-A. Ha, ha, ha. Hosea and Amos are the two prophets we have who are speaking into this northern kingdom before the exile, okay? Hosea, you'll remember, has this vivid metaphor um, of a wife who's unfaithful to her husband, and the Lord says that's what our relationship is like. Um, and we'll say more about Amos a little bit later. But Hosea and Amos, speaking to the northern kingdom. Okay? One of them, it seems like Hosea's in the northern kingdom. Amos, we're not sure about. He might have been writing to them from the south. We don't know. But they're addressing the northern kingdom. Okay. Assyria. Remember? Assyria is one of, our, one of their most brutal enemies, constantly attacking their borders. So what do you say to your enemies, right? Na, 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 na. Okay, so join me in that. What do you say to your enemies? Na, 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 na. Notice both Jonah and Nahum have the letters N-A-H in their names, right? Jonah and Nahum, okay? So these are the two prophets that are called to talk to God's enemies. And instead of saying na, 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 they actually call them to repentance call them um, to respond to the God of Israel. But Jonah and Nahum are talking to Assyria, to God's enemies. Um, over in Babylon, Ed, there was a little known exile from the kingdom of Judah who ended up in Babylon, humble carpenter, name was Ed, okay? He ends up in Babylon with the exiles who, who go over there and becomes quite famous because Ed reminds us of Ezekiel and Daniel, who are two prophets who speak to the community of exiles in Babylon, okay? Ed, Ezekiel, Daniel, sorry, I was hoping to have a map up here, but that didn't happen. E.D., Ed, little known Babylonian exile, Ed. Ezekiel and Daniel speak to the people in exile. Now, um, After the event of the exile, there's this really painful, it was like watching Babylon come in and loot and burn down Jerusalem was bad enough. But there was insult to injury, okay? So if we're standing here in Jerusalem looking at the northerners and saying, ha, 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 and looking over at the enemy in Assyria and saying, na, 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 then we need to also turn around. Watch me first and we'll do this together. 
like Obadiah and look at the Edomites, okay? They were in the south. They were the descendants of Esau or Edom, okay? Um, the descendants of Esau. So they were Jacob's cousins, right? And they, when Jerusalem was sacked, came and watched the sacking of Jerusalem and cheered on the Babylonians, okay? So it was, and, and helped in participating in the looting of Jerusalem. So there was this deep sense of like family betrayal about the way that Edom handled the sacking of Jerusalem. So Obadiah essentially says, oh, bad Edom, okay? That's how we remember Obadiah's message. Oh, bad Edom. So stand up, turn south, and say, oh, bad Edom. Okay, turn around, don't sit down yet. Look up north and say, ha, 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 Hosea and Amos. And over at our enemies and say, na, 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 that's Jonah and Nahum. Turn around, face south and say, oh, bad Edom. Okay, good. So we're nearly there. After the exile, um, the Lord brings his people back and along with Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, who restore the temple, the people, and the walls, right? Zerubbabel temple, Ezra people, Nehemiah walls. The Lord also raises up several prophets to cheer them on in the work that God has given them to do and to correct them when they lose sight of what they're supposed to be about, right? So these people come back from exile. When the Lord says it's time to come back, they come back and hazam, they're back in Jerusalem. So do that with me, you ready? When it's time to come back, hazam, they're back in Jerusalem. So that's Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi speak to God's people after they're back in Jerusalem, but after their return from the exile, okay? Um, and here's a challenge for you. You guys can work out an acronym for this. Basically, the rest of the prophets <laughs> speak to the people of Judah in Jerusalem before the exile. So I didn't exactly do this chronologically. Um, but the rest of the prophets that you have listed there, Isaiah and Micah and the rest, um, are all in Jerusalem. So um, stand up. This is like a process of elimination thing. So somebody come up with a good acronym for those last six. But here we go. We're looking at our northern neighbors and saying, ha, ha, ha. And that means the prophets speaking to the north are? Hosea and Amos. Okay, then over to Assyria. Na, 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 which means the prophets speaking to Assyria, the Jonah and Nahum. Okay, turn around, face south, and say, Oh, bad Edom. So who's our prophet to the Edomites? Obadiah, right? And when it's time to come back to Jerusalem, Hazam, they're back in Jerusalem. So that's Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Okay, good job. Have a seat. Hazam. All right. Um, we have like half an hour to talk about 22 books of the prophets and what they're about. So now you know who they're talking to. So this will be a very short summary. Um, but we'll leave some time at the end for questions. So these prophets are people who God has raised up to speak his words to the people, not just his people, to the nations as well, right? We see that happening in Assyria and Babylon. Um, but at the risk of, of oversimplifying, um, I just want to pull out the two major themes that we see over and over and over again 
in the prophets, and that is this, idolatry and injustice. What are the two great commandments? Jesus comes on the scene and they say, what's the greatest commandment? And he picks two. What are they? Yeah. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? These are the two great commandments. This is what we're created to do. The two problems that the prophets consistently address are failures to keep those commandments. So idolatry is a failure to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And injustice is an inability to love your neighbor as yourself, okay? And these two eyes, idolatry and injustice, are the themes that we see throughout all the prophetical books. So just as a quick example, the prophets who speak to the north, Hosea and Amos, Hosea is all about idolatry, about being like an unfaithful wife to God, a wife who cheats on him, right? Because she's running after all these other lovers, other idols. Amos, you might remember, is about how these people in the north have been amassing wealth um, in a way that squeezes out the poor and the disenfranchised. So it's supposed to be an equitable society. Instead, some people are amassing wealth. Uh, Amos describes these um, huge houses inlaid with ivory, and meanwhile, there are hungry people on the streets, okay? So Hosea is about primarily idolatry, and Amos is about injustice, um, although most prophets address both. But these are the two big themes. So if somebody says to you, what are the Old Testament prophets talking about? You say, the two great commandments, right? How people are not loving the Lord their God with all their heart and not loving their neighbors as themselves. Idolatry and injustice. Um, okay. I want to spend the time that we have left tonight um, talking about idolatry. And... Um, I think, actually, Francisca, can I send you to go help John? He wanted me to send you over there halfway through because of what we're doing now. Is that okay? Thank you. We'll call you back if there's any serious math that needs to be done. Okay. Um, the first commandment is you, will, you shall have no other gods before me. Top of the list, right? Can you think of any times when God's people broke that commandment? <laughs> Just throw out the first few that come to mind. Yeah, Eve. How about after? Golden calf. Yeah, before he, Moses had even finished coming down. That's the first example that comes to mind, right? But it happens over and over and over again. And I think our temptation, as we look back on this season of history, on this, these downward spirals of idolatry, on the idolatry that happens here, of course, Solomon's idolatry with all his, the cultures and idols of his wives, kind of leads to this division of the kingdom. And we look back and we're like, come on, guys. Like, what's the appeal? <laughs> Why is this such a hard pattern to get out of, right? You serve the living God who does, like, mega big things, like send plagues on your enemies and open the Red Sea. And you're really addicted to these little statues. Like, it doesn't, it's, it, it's, it doesn't make much sense to us. Or it's easy for us to look back and feel kind of, perplexed, if not smug, about this pattern. It seems so clear in retrospect that this was a dumb idea. So why was it so appealing? But I think um, to understand this Israel's kind of pattern of temptation, we've got to understand the Canaanite fertility cults of the ancient Near East. And my apologies to those of you who've heard me talk about this before, because um, 
I talk about it a lot. <laughs> so forgive me if it's, if it's a replay. Um, but I like to think about it because I think it makes it easier for us to understand, to recognize similar patterns in our lives. So I want to begin by sketching out some of the major characters in Canaanite religion, right? Because you can't understand Buddhism if you don't know anything about Buddha, right? You can't understand Islam without knowing something about Muhammad. So who are the main characters in this Canaanite religion? Well, I'm, I can't talk about all of them. There were so many. But I want to talk about the ones that we hear most about in the Old Testament. So first of all, you have El, the supreme god. And we hear him referred to a few times. Um, but maybe the more important one, in terms of frequent use, um, was Baal, who was the storm god, right? He's always pictured with a lightning bolt in his hand. Baal is the storm god. So he was supposed to be the god who sent storms, the god who sent rain. He was the god of fertility for the, want, for the land and for people. Um, and he was the god of wine. So this is why worshiping him involves so much sex and alcohol, right? It's like one big frat party. He was the god of fertility and the god of wine. Makes sense, right? Um, we'll talk about that a little more in a minute. In addition to Baal, you had this character of Anat, who was Baal's sister and his spouse, which means Baal is definitely a redneck, in my opinion, right? <laughs> he married his sister. She was a fertility goddess. Um, I'm sorry, Rosie, that was a crass joke. Um, she was always depicted in this highly sexualized way, right? So this is the playboy of the ancient world. Um, but she was also supposed to be vicious and violent. So one ancient text describes Anat, this woman, sister spouse, um, massacring both old and young people alike. And it says this, she smites the people of the seashore. She destroys mankind of the sunrise. She piles up heads on her back. She ties up hands in her bundle, and Anat gluts her liver with laughter. Her heart is filled with joy. Okay? So very vicious, very sexualized. Like, you see the Egyptian statuettes, and their goddesses are always, like, clothed in these beautiful garments. Well, Anat is, like, naked and flirtatious looking. Um, so a lot of her character and the ways that she was worshipped carry over into the way the Canaanite, Canaanites worshipped the goddess Asherah. So we hear more about Asherah than Anat in the Old Testament. But they, they seem to be the same character or very similar characters. Um, okay, so Baal is this, the god of fertility, the god of wine. Anat or Asherah is the goddess, of, is this highly sexualized, very violent goddess, okay? One aspect of Baal worship that God's people were involved in was the practice of child sacrifice, which is in line with all this violence of Anat or Asherah. So, for example, there's an archaeological site in North Africa um, in a community that practiced Baal worship um, where archaeologists have uncovered what seems to be a ritual burial site um, for children. They found 20,000 urns each holding the cremated remains of at least one, sometimes more than one infant or toddler. And the details of the way the site is arranged suggest that these, were, these children were victims of, of child sacrifice. Um, so this is serious business. Like when the, when the prophets go on a rant about idolatry, it's not just like some abstract spiritual 
rivalry. Like the, the way that people understood the gods had imminent and really important implications on the way that they lived together in community. And, um, and idolatry was dangerous stuff, so the Lord lovingly doesn't stay quiet about it. So the bottom line of Baal worship is this, okay? These fertility cults were focused on making sure that the crops did well enough to provide for people's physical needs. And here's, here's why, okay? The people believed that when it rained, the male god, Baal, who lived in the clouds, remember he's the storm god, um, was inseminating the female goddess associated with the earth. She symbolized the earth, right? So they believed the rain, which was needed for crops, was a result of the god's intercourse, okay? As a result, these Baal worshipers seem to have believed that if they went to the temple and had intercourse with a cult prostitute, that that would, like, give the gods the idea, you know? Hey, it's play day. Don't you want to, like, have intercourse and make rain? Right? So they engage in all this kind of prostitution to sort of spur the gods on, right? Jog their memories about prosperity and fertility. Well, how did, how, how did God's people get mixed up in this? How does this affect them? Well, here's the deal with the Israelites, okay? In Egypt, where, of course, they'd been for hundreds of years, right, before coming to Canaan, um, there was always a consistent supply of water from the Nile because it flooded yearly, very predictably. Um, and the Egyptians had developed this kind of sophisticated system of irrigation to use that water throughout the year. Um, so in Egypt, water is not a problem. They have a system for it, it's under control, they know what to expect, and they're pretty relaxed about food. But when the Israelites moved to Canaan, to the Promised Land, they had to learn new methods, new farming methods, because here they're dependent on rain for water, right? It's a dry climate, rain isn't a given, um, famine's pretty common in Canaan. So think about the Old Testament. Over and over again, you see all these people who have to leave Canaan for a while because of the famine, right? Can you think of anybody in that category? Who has to leave Canaan because there's a famine, or Israel because there's a famine? Jacob has to leave. Jacob's family leaves. Before that, Abraham and Sarah have to leave. They go down to Egypt, and that's where he lies about Sarah being his sister to Pharaoh. But they're there because there's no food in Canaan at the time. Um, Isaac does the same thing. Joseph's whole, Jacob's whole family goes down. In the book of Ruth, Elimelech and Naomi and their family have to go to um, Moab because there's a famine in Canaan. In, once we're in the kingdom period, you have famines in the reigns of David, of Ahab, of Zedekiah, even more. There's always famine, okay? Elijah predicts drought, remember? There's three years with three years with no rain. This happened a lot. Even in the New Testament, we read about um, the believers in Antioch sending an offering to the believers in Judea because of a great famine, okay? So this is an area of the world that can be really dry and can experience kind of prolonged seasons of drought. Now, when Jesus gives a sermon about not worrying about anything, what is his first example? He says, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat and what shall we drink, right? That's what you worry about when you live in Canaan. That's what you would be tempted to worry about. So here in Canaan, once they move out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land, um, Water is unpredictable. It totally depends on rain. Even today, those of you who've spent some time in Israel can attest, 
the tour guides will say, don't pray for it not to rain. That's what tourists always do. They pray for dry weather and like, don't pray for that. Pray that it rains at night, okay? If you have to pray for no rain, just pray that it rains at night. Um, because it's still a place that depends on rain. Now, when it does rain there, it's a totally fruitful land. So God wasn't kidding about it being the land of milk and honey. Um, but it, dep it totally depends on the rain. So most of the time, Israel today exports up to 80% of its agricultural output because it just produces so much. Israeli cows produce the highest amount of milk per animal in the world right now, okay? Um, so it's a fruitful place, but it really needs rain. So Canaan could be fruitful, but it wasn't as predictable for food, right? So the Israelites move from this place where food is steady and predictable. Remember when they're in Egypt, they reminisce about the food that they miss from Egypt? Like, oh, remember we used to eat and it's all food with high water content. Cucumbers, melons, leeks, garlics, onions, you know, garlic, onions, um, all high water content food you could only grow in Egypt, right? And then they move to Canaan where they have to trust the Lord to provide the rain, the food that they need, which he'd promised to do if they followed him, but they were stressed about it. Now, remember the wilderness. It's not like the Lord hasn't proven to them that he can provide food when there's no food to be found, right? It's what he sends manna from heaven for. So he'd sort of built up his resume for being able to provide for them, but like us, they, they quickly forgot. Um, and they get anxious over and over again about food, and they look around to their neighbors to be like, how are they dealing with this? Um, what are they doing about it? So the Lord wanted him to, them to trust him for rain, and in Instead, they choose over and over again to worship Baal in an attempt to get rain for themselves, just like their neighbors did. So if you have a Bible in front of you, could you turn to Deuteronomy 11, verses 10 through 7, 17, sorry, 10 through 17. Deuteronomy 11, verses 10 through 17. With all that kind of rain, with all the rain issues in your mind, I want you to listen for this with these questions in mind. What's the difference between Egypt and the land of Canaan? And what does the Lord say his role is going to be in this new land? So if somebody could read Deuteronomy 11, 10 through 17 aloud, great. Yeah, thank you. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain on the ground or yield no produce, and you will soon perish from your good land or your good soil. Thank you so much. Okay, so what's the difference between Egypt and the promised land? Not a trick question. Just review where you see it in this passage. Verse 10. Yeah. 
Yep, it's not like Egypt. Do you see verse 10, where you irrigated? That does, that's not going to happen here. But how does this land get watered? Yeah. Where do you see that? Verse 11, yeah. It drinks water by the rain from heaven. Right? Who cares for this land? Yeah, not the Egyptian irrigation department, right? <laughs> the Lord's the one who has to keep an eye on rain. And what's his role going to be? Yeah. Like when? How often? Yeah. So every time they need rain, it, in all the seasons, the early rains, the later rains, the spring, I mean, like he's on it, right? So it's okay that you don't have an irrigation department here because this is my job. So you can see the Lord's heart here to meet his people's needs. He's not saying, oh, I'm going to step back, see how stressed you get, what you'll do if you get desperate, you know. No, he's promised to give them what they need and because he wants to meet their needs, and the other gods couldn't do it. Um, there's, there's all this kind of funny banter in these historical books about Baal. But you might remember the time when Elijah is on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Baal who are supposed to get lightning on their altar or fire on their altar, and Elijah who's supposed to get fire on his. Now, this is hysterical because, first of all, they've, they're at the end of a three-year drought, right? So if Baal's awake, how come they've had a three-year drought, right? Secondly, Baal is always pictured in all the ancient art, art with a lightning rod in his hand. So if you say, Baal, could you start a fire, should not be that hard for him, right? But instead, they say for an entire day, Baal, could you start a fire, and nothing happens, right? Mr. Lightning Bolt is not doing anything. Um, and then Elijah prays and asks the Lord to start a fire on his drenched altar, and it happens right away, right? Part of the reason the Lord doesn't want them to trust these other gods is because these other gods can't do a flippin' thing. They can't do anything. So these people are selling their souls to, to spiritual forces that aren't going to get them anywhere, that actually just take away their lives. They're looking for what they need in all the wrong places. And the Lord wants them to love him with their whole hearts because he's the only one who can give them what they need. He's promised to do it. So I, I want you to see, because I think it helps us, that one major dynamic in Israel's idolatry was that it was an attempt to get their needs met. And I think that sounds more familiar to us, right? Because when do we turn away from the Lord and do stupid things? When we're freaked out about what we need. And we're not sure God is going to be good enough or quick enough or love us enough to give us what we need. It's that place of fear that I think we are spiritually vulnerable as well um, to turn away from, from trusting the Lord with our whole hearts. Um, so are, am I sad or depressed? Well, maybe I'll just buy a latte, <laughs> eat some chocolate, you know? Like, I have needs, and I'm so quick to turn to, not that those things are bad in and of themselves, but, um, but they don't do a good job of bringing me joy, right? Are we afraid about the future? Do we need peace? Well, I'll just go shopping take my mind off it, right? Or maybe we spend a ton of time reviewing our retirement plan or whatever. It's like that place of vulnerability and sadness and need like is what sends us out to other gods more quickly than anything else, in my experience. Um, am I feeling alone in the world? Well, the answer has to be 
dating or marriage or something romantic, <laughs> something I can do something about, right, rather than bringing that need to the Lord. Um, and I think whether we're tempted to worship food or money or success or um, other people's approval or our children's happiness or whatever it is, we're usually doing something to try to meet our own needs in our own way instead of waiting on the Lord because the rain always took longer than they wanted it to, but waiting on the Lord who's promised to do it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say that there's anything wrong with any of those things per se. Um, because under Jesus' lordship, all those things, from lattes to marriage, have their life-giving place for us, right? Um, but so often we turn to them when we're needy instead of the Lord. Or as Paul says in Romans, we worship and serve created things rather than the creator, right? That's the issue. Um, and instead of giving us life, they tend to actually drain us of life. Um, Tim Keller in his book, which I highly recommend, and if I had a pen, I would write it down. So now you'll just have to exercise your auditory skills, memorization skills. Tim Keller's written a great book called Counterfeit Gods. And in that book, he says this, Counterfeit Gods, I highly recommend the book. If we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. And it's that heartbreak um, that the Lord wants to spare us from. Because ironically, Israel discovers in the long run, just like we do, um, that idolatry backfires, right? The very thing they were chasing evaded them because they were looking for it in the wrong places. So they're chasing physical pleasure, right? And as a result, what did they get as a consequence of punishment from the Lord? Hunger, thirst, disease, infertility, famine, you know, invasion. That's not very physically pleasurable. Um, they worship Baal to ensure an adequate harvest, and the Lord says he's closing up the heavens because of their idolatry. So they sold their souls for good crops, and they got drought. Um, and this, for me, this is something I've been thinking about a lot, especially since becoming a parent, that I think the things, that, the very things that we often chase evade us a lot of the time because we're worshiping them because we're chasing them, right? So, for example, if, um, if, you're, if you idolize your children's happiness, for example, you, and you're just giving your whole self to just keep them happy, make them happy, make sure they're happy all the time, um, you can either suffocate them or totally spoil them, right? which ends up making them and you deeply unhappy, right? If you're chasing that first instead of the Lord, um, then actually it kind of backfires. Or if you idolize romance, you can put all your eggs into the basket of whatever relationship you're in at the time so intensely that you squeeze the life out of any relationship you actually have. Um, all the joy and vitality can just be out the window because of that chasing, because of that intensity. Idolatry backfires because only the Lord is worth chasing. He's the only one who can give us what we need. Um, turn with me, if you will, as we will finish up together um, to Matthew 6. Verse 
31 through 33. Matthew 6, 31 to 33. Can anybody read that? 31 through 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. Okay, keep that open in front of you. What did Jesus' words say about idolatry and about our needs? Look at what he's saying here. What does this say about our needs? What does this say about idols? In 32, he knows that he needs them all. Uh-huh. So. Take out the one. Yeah. He, he sees what the real need is, right? What else? What else does it say about us? Yeah. Yeah, right. That's what we've just seen happen for like a thousand years before he says this, is the pagans chase, chase, chasing these things, trying to make them happen. So there's a contrast here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. What do you think about 33? I think he, it's these things in 32. No, go ahead, Michael. Here's why I'm, I'm tempted to see it. I mean, I, I see it that way. Because you have these things in verse 32 and these things in verse 33. The pagans run after these things. But if you seek the kingdom first, all these things will be given to you. I think it's the same, these things. At least that might Right, right. So it's a question of what are you chasing? What are you seeking, right? They're seeking those things. And he says, seek the Lord, and he'll, he knows what you need. He'll give it to you, right? Um, notice that he doesn't say, the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly father wants you to be more spiritual. Get over yourself. Stop being so needy. Be more, you know, focused on important things, on heavenly things. Make do or do without, you know. Just look at heaven. That's not what he says, is it? He says he wants us to have what we need. Now, sometimes his understanding of what we need is different than our sense of what we need, right? But he wants us to have what we need. That's why he hates idolatry, because idols can't give us what, what we really need. Um, so he says, seek his kingdom first. Go after the things that matter to the king. Um, that's an alternative way of dealing with our needs, <laughs> is trusting them to, to the king. So let me just close by saying this, and then we'll have a little, a few, little time for questions. Um, if you think about it, this idea of seeking what you need from God instead of chasing it on your own, right, going after it yourself, manipulating the gods to give you what you need, right? That idea is at the heart of the gospel, isn't it? Because what's our greatest need as people, greatest ultra mega need? To be reconciled to God, yeah, to be in relationship with him. Can we just make that happen by like seeing enough temple prostitutes and giving enough like sacrifices, 
sacrificing our babies? No, no. That's the heart of the gospel is that um, Jesus takes that need and he fills it himself, right? With no need for us to go do extra stuff, um, do anything else to get forgiveness. That kind of striving is in vain. Jesus is the bread of life, right? He fills our deepest hunger. It's not, we don't have to go chase it. Um, It's a gift. So if he's going to take care of that need, why wouldn't he take care of other needs? Like, that's just, that's what Paul says in Romans 8. He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things, right? That is the truth, God's willingness to give us what we need desire to give us what we really need um, that saves us from striving and it saves us from idolatry. So the pagans run after these things. That's the message of the prophets. The pagans are running after these things. Your heavenly father knows that you need them. That's what Zachariah says about rain. I'll give you rain, spring, autumn, all the rains, early, late. I know what you need. I'll give them to you. Your heavenly father knows that you need them. So seek first his kingdom. Um, Okay, we have a few minutes for questions. That's a lot to think about. All the prophets in one hour! But, um, yeah, I'd love to know if there are any lingering questions. Any thoughts? Thank you. Any questions that come up? I'm going to make you practice the prophets again if you don't come up with anything. You want a minute to process? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, okay. Sacrificing apparently in large numbers. Yeah. Children. children. Does Western Christianity have an opinion as to whether or not Asherah, given the magnitude of this, mm-hmm. was in yeah, that's a really, it's not a weird question at all. It's interesting. Um, there are times when the prophets kind of make fun of the idols, like, huh, okay, so you're made out of wood. <laughs> Isaiah has all these satires. So let's, let's go backwards here. So there was a craftsman who cut down a tree, and he took half the word, wood. This is in Isaiah 44. He used it to make a fire to make his lunch, and the other half of the wood he turned into this all-powerful idol that doesn't even have eyes yet or ears yet. He kind of walks through the construction process. And it's like making fun of like, really? Okay, so your brother is like a a campfire and your mother is like a, you know, oak tree. So there are times when they focus on how ridiculously inept and um, silly idolatry is. But there are, which it is on one level. On the other hand, there are times when the prophets seem to acknowledge that there are some kinds of real spiritual, dark, demonic forces going on behind idolatry. So it's not just a tree that can't talk. I mean, yes, it is a tree that can't talk. Why would you worship it? That's what the prophets often say, Isaiah especially. But, um, but there are these indications, Ezekiel is probably the best example, that there's something darker, sinister, not just powerless, but, but dark, you know, evil going on in idolatry. So I don't think that's a weird question at all. I mean, I think that's how we see it, especially given the fact that Jesus gives us kind of more information about the the enemy's kingdom. 
it seems like that's a pretty clear connection to make. And there are hints of it in the prophets themselves. Yes, good question. What else? Other questions? Yeah. Yeah. We didn't really cover the section of the Catholic theology that was called Yeah. So those are just. That's your job. That's my clarification. Come up with an <laughs> acronym <laughs> for those. So all the rest of them. Yep. Kind of just. All the rest of them are in Judah, speaking to Judah before the exile. I've got Joel in parentheses because we don't have, there's nothing in the book itself that dates it. So it could have been before the exile, it could be after the exile. It's talking about some kind of military invasion, but I mean, like that happens so many times that it doesn't narrow it down very much because he's not very specific. Um, but the rest of the Mia are written to Judah. So somebody come to me with a good acronym. My creative juices were spent at that point. <laughs> Other thoughts? Yeah, John. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. No, it's okay. Um, you mentioned in, in the major characters mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. the, the main Lord, the Lord, the Lord, I understand, is Elohim, and one of the in God Almighty uh, in Hebrew is El Shaddai. Yep. Is there a connection? El was basically an ancient Semitic word for God. So for the Canaanites, that was the word they used for their supreme being, whom they didn't really talk about that much, right? And the Hebrews also used that word, generic kind of word for God. Sometimes it's Elohim. Um, which can mean either singular or plural, God or gods, okay? That's where you get Eloheinu comes from Elohim, our God. Eloheinu is our God. Um, so, yeah. So it's just, it's just using the word God, just like we use the word God to talk about a very different God than some of the spiritual beings that other people mean when they say God. Does that make sense? So the word kind of is used between cultures. Good question, though. Yeah. Yeah. Quick observation and a quick question. I'm seeing in this, you know, there's a condition and all this um, worshiping and everything. And it, it just, I can hardly wrap my head around the fact that all he seems to want when you come to me, mm -hmm. I wanted to give you this. Now, that's another priority, John. I do, do. Yeah. Just come, please, please. Somehow yeah. he wants us. Yeah. And also, kingdom of God, I assume to be, you know, seen for mm -hmm. the authority of God. Mm -hmm. um, you showed us all the ways that he's not like us, mm -hmm. an idol. Uh, seek him, seek yeah. his face. So, I don't know, we never, uh, Father Cuddy said you never really find a definition. I think Jesus is the kingdom of God. Yeah, yeah, well, it's the place where the king is in charge. It's any place or situation where the king is being treated like the king you, you know you yeah that yeah okay. yeah okay. Okay. I don't know if that counts as a definition all right yeah. it's um yeah let's do one more question and then we'll formally wrap up but we can stick around and keep talking Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, um, we hear, I'm trying to think about it. It's more extra biblical. Like Jeremiah, the last we see of Jeremiah is that he ends up going down into Egypt with some people. So when the Babylonian invasion happened, some of the prophets and priests kind of snuck away to Egypt um, and were not exiled. And Jeremiah was in that crowd. But I mean, he was nobody's favorite person. Do you remember? Like they kept throwing him into the bottom of the cistern and whatever. I mean, and he's like basically more than anyone else is the guy in the Old Testament who's like, Lord, if you treat your friends this way, like no wonder you have so few. To quote <laughs> Teresa Baba. He's like, I wish I'd never been born. Like, how could you be my friend and, and give me this life? Um, so he laments, kind of he's called to a particularly hard road, but we don't hear about the end of his life, I don't think, in the scriptures. Isaiah, tradition has it that he um, was sawn in two by one, by one of the kings of Judah. So you remember when we, is it, it's in Hebrew when it talks about the like list of faithful people, Hebrews 11, it talks about those who were sawn in two, and we don't in the actually in the Old Testament have a record of that happening specifically to anyone. Um, but the apocryphal literature talks about Isaiah being sawn in two. Or maybe it's just rabbinic tradition. Anyway, but the New Testament kind of affirms that. Um, so yeah, many of them, I mean, many of them were persecuted. I mean, poor Elijah's like, there's lots of examples. <laughs> so they weren't all killed, but many of them were persecuted and some of them seem to have been killed in action in the line of duty. Okay, let me pray, and then um, I'm happy to stay for more questions if there are any. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the whole story. Thank you that the goodness of the good news seems even better when we realize what a desperate situation we were in on this planet before you came to be one of us. We pray that you would um, help us to hear the words of the prophets afresh. Lord, it's particularly this call to trust you with what we need rather than chasing after it ourselves, Lord. We ask for the ability by your spirit to follow your first commandment of loving you with our whole heart, soul, and mind and strength. Would your spirit please be speaking to each of us individually about the ways in which we might cooperate with you even more in that, Lord, and obey you and enjoy you with that kind of wholehearted love. For we ask it in Jesus' name.